Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commitment Matters. Today, we have another robust conversation covering a variety of topics that I think you'll enjoy. Chuck Kane from the FNF family of companies is my guest, and you probably know that Chuck is the Senior Vice President of National Agency for Fidelity. Some of the topics we cover are the changing business models of realtors and how to market to them effectively, some things to look out for while using social media for marketing, the value of the data you hold in your shops, cybersecurity and fraud schemes, and of course, what's going on in Washington, D.C., because it has the potential to impact our business very much. Chuck has been a licensed title insurance agent for over 35 years, owning and operating his own agencies for 18 of those years. He is truly one of the most well-versed individuals working in our industry today. Now, he and I make it a point to touch base every few months to talk about what's going on in the world of real estate. So this time we thought you might enjoy listening in. And as we are finally able to venture out and begin to see one another at industry events, if you attend one that Chuck is attending to, take a moment and tell him that you enjoyed this episode. And if you want, feel free to pitch him a question or two that's on your mind. I can guarantee you he will have a thoughtful answer for you. Enjoy. Chuck, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I want to cover a lot of topics today because you are always dialed into a myriad of important topics. So I'm going to start with one that maybe a lot of folks haven't really thought about yet. And I think it's a, a good thing to frame up and help people with. And that is the way that realtors are doing business now is really changing their business models. And so we need to understand not only how to work operationally within that, but also how to market to them. So let's start there and talk about what we know for sure and what we're speculating. Sure, I'd be happy to. And thanks, Mary, for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure and it's so great to see you. The realty model and certainly COVID has accelerated some aspects of it, I believe. But we were starting to see the realty model change, you know, from the traditional brokerage that we had always seen where we've got a broker, maybe a small broker, maybe a large broker. They may have 10 agents. They may have 10,000 agents. It's a wide myriad of people in a number of offices, a lot of brick and mortar. And we began to see changes a few years ago, but going back five, six, seven years ago, as new companies, tech-generated companies, were starting to move forward. Uh, you know, among them, I mean, Redfin certainly has been uh, one of the uh, major movers in this area where their real estate agents are not independent contractors, they are employees. Very different model. We saw some of those models years ago. They didn't work. We weren't in the same technological age as we are now. We see other companies moving forward, Compass, EXP, that are this blend of high tech, but also personal touch. I'll refer to Brad Inman, who I think is the master of understanding where reality is and where reality is going. And he discussed this a few years ago. He called it, you know, the different models, sort of the, you know, the online, the Charles Schwab model, as he called it, where you do everything yourself and, you know, E-Trade. And that's sort of the Redfin model. And then you've got a model where you can talk to an investment broker or in this case, a real estate agent, but then highly tech, or then we have the traditional model. So we have these sort of three different varieties of experience that going back eight and nine years ago, consumers didn't have. It was pretty much just, you got in the Cadillac, you drove around, you saw 16 houses, and then you put an offer in on the first one you saw. Not much changed, but that has changed dramatically. And what we've also began to see, and this goes back three or four years ago as well, internally within the brokerages that are the more traditional brokerages, we see the rise of the team 
on the uh, Inman headlines, it was discussion about how teams are becoming more and more important. And real estate brokers whom I've known for 20, 25 years, they used to reach out, they used to do recruiting. Uh, they would bring in, if it's a large brokerage, 100, 200 new agents, train them, just sort of see where it's sorted out. Mm -hmm. And there'd be 20 or 30 left after the term of the first year who were successful. That was sort of the business model to bring in uh, new agents into their brokerages. Now we see these teams being built up and quite often it's the teams where we see the recruitment of the young professionals. So we will see one or two or three high-powered agents. You know, the old 80-20 rule as it used to go that 80% of the properties are sold by 20% of the real estate agents is more like a 90-10 rule. And that 10%, they have their teams, they have their marketing, they certainly are tied into the brokerage, they use the brokerage facilities, uh, they use the brokerage IT systems, but they really are sort of an independent uh, operation and they're the ones quite often who are doing the training right. of the young up and coming agents because they'll have two, three, four, five associates who are coming along. So it's a different model from what we used to have. Uh, someone who I knew years ago in Michigan said, well, you know, if you go into a real estate office and you bring donuts, what you find are donut eaters. <laughs> That's even more the case now. If you go into a real estate office, the high producing agents are rarely there. And so how do you reach out to them? If you're a title or settlement agent and in your market that realty is the source of your business, how do you do it? You have to be highly motivated. You have to really develop your social media because that's how you're going to reach them. You're going to reach them through Facebook. You're going to reach them through LinkedIn, through other systems. And that's how they're going to find out about you because there is no place to go to see them. Quite often, they don't even have an office. And so uh, it's a very different system. You know, and it goes to this sort of variety of experience for the consumer. Again, the, the consumer has a variety of experience they can uh, have in regard to realty, just as we now have in our industry, a variety of experience in regard to settlement. Do you show up at the office and uh, sign paper documents or maybe a mix of paper documents and electronic documents? Or is it something where, at least at this point, we still have RIN and Avon? Yes. We have things that are done over the uh, web, but more traditional type of execution. And then we have full-blown RON. And so consumers more and more are looking for those options. We see that with lenders too, that they want to be able to offer those various options because as the old phrase my father used to use in men's clothing, well, one size fits none. You want to have all those different ways our industry always was sort of branded as being antiquated and with our feet firmly placed in the 1950s. But with COVID, necessity was the mother of invention. And we found ways to make things happen where our consumer customers felt comfortable and they were able to consummate their transactions and uh, the lenders were able to get their transactions done. So we've done this. And I think we're not going back to to your original question, uh, because one thing does lead to another. And, Especially when we're talking. Uh, yeah, the realty model is very different, just as the title and settlement model uh. is very different. And so you have to know who the realty companies are that are doing business in your marketplace. We're going to see more iBuyer companies coming in to a lot of communities where people may not have thought iBuyers were going to be a big part of it. It's pretty easy to think of you know, Miami or Orange County or Dallas as an iBuyer neighborhood. You know, what about Chattanooga? You know, what about Dayton, Ohio? What about Galena, Illinois? It's coming. Yeah. And especially as, you know, when iBuyer was first kind of emerging, I thought, okay, there's going to be a subset of 
younger buyers that do expect this. And at the time, I thought, just like I'm not sure I'd buy a car out of a vending machine, but a lot of people do. I'm not sure that I would buy a house sight unseen. It looks like a flight out of some of the major metropolitan areas in those markets you would traditionally think of that would be more ripe for this. And you look at Galena, Illinois, a Boise, Idaho, where you have people coming out of the cities who may not be able to come on a house hunting trip, but they know they want to come live there or can't stay long enough to do all of the home finding. Obviously, the demand for that has increased and I think will continue to increase. Sounds like you think the same. Absolutely. And I think one thing, just as you've talked about buying automobiles sight unseen, if you're buying from a company that does this and they stand behind it, and if the iBuyer program is one where they've done their own inspections, you know, they've done routine inspections, and you can certainly hire your own inspector to go ahead and go through the property. I mean, all those things can happen. But I think it was two years ago that you know, Redfin was reporting that as many as one in four of their transactions that they closed through Redfin, the buyer had never seen the property. And especially to say relocation, and the relocation may not be very far. They can go online and they can see aspects of the house, about hire their own inspector. But if you're working with an iBuyer company that's a national company, and we see in terms of the market disruption, a lot of cash being moved into a lot of these iBuyer companies and SPACs being developed to make them public companies, right. they necessarily will, for their own business reasons, you know, want to stand behind those homes. They're not going to be looking to sell a house that the basement floods every time it rains. They're going to look into that. And so I think we will see that. And more and more of the iBuyer companies, and especially as they are developing the cash and financial resources develop, they're going into communities where a lot of people probably thought, I'm not going to see iBuyers here because people want to buy properties to turn them into Airbnbs. And it's not. It's to buy their own homes or second homes. Well, I want to go back to the realtors for a moment because we love them. And you rightfully said at this point, you're not going to find them in the office. So for a title company needing to market to them, and you mentioned stepping up the social media game, I think an agent would innately think, all right, if I can promote what that realtor's doing, if I can like or follow or help them with their posts or some of those realms, then we also have to start thinking about our compliance game for social media advertising in that whole sphere. So do you have some thoughts on that for people? Depending where you are, because if you're in a state like California or even a state like Missouri that has certain restrictions in regard to social media, co-marketing and co-advertising, that you need to understand you know, what are the federal laws in regard to it? What can you pay for? What can you not pay for? It goes back to Section 8 of RESPA, which you and I have spent many a time pounding a stage discussing Section 8 of RESPA. What does the state allow in regard to that marketing? Are marketing service agreements something that one may look into? The CFPB rolled out a set of FAQs that uh, rescinded their bulletin about MSAs. They answer many questions, sometimes pose more questions than they answered in the FAQs, but that's usually typical of most FAQs. But yes, certainly, if you're going to enter into it, you have to have your compliance attorney on the sleeve of your marketing person. Because if you just hire someone who is experienced in marketing, generally speaking, or a degree in marketing, we are a regulated industry. And there's a lot of things we can't do. Yes. And so if we were selling widgets, yes, you could do these things. But we're not selling widgets. And we're governed by RESPA. We're governed by a whole host of state and federal laws and regulations. So yes, you have to scrutinize your compliance. And when you're reaching out there in regard to Facebook and other media sites, you'd be very mindful of what you're saying and what are your employees saying? 
One example of someone I know who had a lot of problems with what an employee was saying and doing and posting on the employee's personal Facebook site. Now, some of the people who followed that Facebook site were also people who followed the business Facebook site of the employee. And when the employee was confronted, the employee, who had a degree in marketing, by the way, said, I don't understand what the problem is. It's like, well, the problem is the same people see these things. So it's bleeding over into our business Facebook initiatives. And it's some comments that we don't want to have said. You know, there are uh, disparaging comments about individuals, sexist comments. Political. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's like, you can't do this. It's bad for business. And it's bad in terms of compliance because we're seeing more and more, especially the Bureau, even during the Trump administration, but as we move into the Biden years, fair housing is a big deal. And they are very sensitive about comments that are made that may appear to be disparaging of fair housing initiatives or certain communities or certain people. The last thing you need is to get that CID from the Bureau asking questions about why did you post this and why did you allow your employees to post these types of things? Well, let's explore that a little bit more because I think when a lot of title and settlement agents even see or hear the phrase fair housing and or fair lending, they think, well, that doesn't pertain to my business. I'm not the decider of anything. So how would you advise title and settlement agents to think about the fair housing issue as it relates to their operations? Well, I think anybody who's in title and settlement should be advocates for fair housing and fair lending. They should be actively involved in their community, fair housing and fair lending activities and organizations because it's good for the communities. It's good for business. There's no downside, so to speak, of being an advocate in regard to fair housing and fair lending. But to the other side of it, again, have to be very mindful. As you know only too well, there is an ongoing investigation, now litigation involving Townstone Financial in Chicago. The Townstone case involves, or part of it involves, allegations that the Bureau brought against both the president of Townstone individually and against the company that it was making disparaging comments and therefore was creating a a negative environment in regard to fair lending. And it had to do quite often with a radio show that the president of the company was on at like 5.30 in the morning on Sunday morning, but he made comments about certain communities. Townstone is the first mortgage banking entity to have an ECOA complaint brought against it. The Equal Credit Opportunity Act complaints in the past were always banks and regulated institutions. Again, this was an action brought during the Trump years. So this is not just something where someone can say, oh, well, this is while Biden is president. You know, whenever they leave, we won't have to worry about it anymore. As you and I know, that's never going to be the case. And as our mutual friend Phil Shulman told me years ago about the CFPB, I've never seen a regulatory body or bureau created by the federal government that has lasted more than two years and has ever been shut down. So it's like they're always going to be here. And there may be different moods, different views of enforcement. To my mind, I think this present CFPB will be, and I'm using the word muscular in their enforcement activities, just because of comments made by the acting director and by incoming director Chopra. So you have to be very mindful of what's going on. But again, the Townstone case, no one ever brought an action against a mortgage banking institution before under ECOA. Not that I think that title and settlement is a likely target for it, but you don't want to be part of it. Sure. 
And you don't want to be in a circumstance where you've got an employee or you've got someone who is making misstatements about your business or representing your business and therefore it draws attention of a regulator or a community activist group. There's a lot to pay attention to there for sure. And watching not only what your staff is doing, but what your stakeholder partners are doing, because it would not be too big of an extension for a complaint to also involve what happened at the closing, whether or not the alleged problematic incident happened at the closing. It would be very easy to sort of get caught up in the whole ball of twine of the transaction and at least have to spend a lot of time and money defending yourself, right? Absolutely, as I learned in law school, there's no benefit in being a famous defendant. Title and settlement agents who work in marketplaces where there are large ethnic communities, particularly if it's bilingual, have employees who can speak English and Spanish or English and Mandarin so they can work with customers who come to them. But it's something that I think that everybody has to be mindful of as to you know your social presence. What do you do to build your reputation within the various communities that are within your town. And sometimes you have to dig in as to where those groups are and become involved with groups that perhaps you never thought you'd be involved in. But again, it's nothing but a great idea. It rebuilds our towns, rebuilds our cities. It helps with property values. And for someone in title and settlement, it's business. We talked about social media. If you're very activist in that fair housing space and you can get endorsements from fair housing groups, that's a huge plus. It makes a difference, right? And it's not even necessarily people who may be engaged with those fair housing groups. It may be people who politically simply support that concept. And so they see this and they think, wow, this company, they reach out to everybody. These are the kind of people I want to be in business with. I think most Thailand settlement companies participate in Habitat for Humanity projects, builds and fundraising and promoting what Habitat does. And I look at this as very similar, being engaged, being involved, supporting what they do, and in turn, you get some positive support from that and it's just good business, right? Absolutely. Again, I think this is going to be a significant issue in this country for some time. We've seen a lot of treatises written over the last few years about how our communities have changed. One Richard Florida's book, The New Urban Crisis, talks about how communities where there had been ethnic communities before now, there's not quite a segregation, but somewhat of a segregation based on educational lines. So you see people who are of different ethnicities all living in the same community. There's no racial issue that may go on, no religious issue that may go on, but they're people of similar educational levels. If they have a graduate degree, they may not have as much in common with someone who simply went to high school. We're going to see more and more of how these communities change, but how these communities interact and again, fair housing, I think is going to be a significant issue. The first day virtually of the Mortgage Bankers Association Spring Conference was dedicated to fair housing. It was all discussions about all the initiatives that are being done at HUD, at FHFA, at the MBA with the uh, Convergence Program. This is a big issue. And again, it's an issue that economically makes huge sense to help restore our cities and communities. I agree completely. Well, and another issue that has sort of had a renaissance of popularity has to do with cybersecurity and cybercrime. So 10, 12 years ago is when Thailand Settlement first got their dose of real scrutiny in this area. And most had met a threshold. And then everything that's gone on in the last couple of years has brought that back to the forefront. So what are you seeing out there about that? And what are your thoughts on those topics? 
So you and I have been talking about this when it sort of was at its advent. Wire fraud, this is a problem that's going to be with us for some time because the fraudsters can move faster than we can. We've seen circumstances where the fraudsters, it's no longer that isolated group necessarily in Eastern Europe or New Jersey or wherever they are. It's organized crime who's doing this. And it's a very different sort of concept. I'm aware where wire fraudsters, when they did not get the money, have actually hired counsel to bring actions against settlement companies to pay them the money that they were trying to get fraudulently. Now, the attorneys know nothing about the basis of it till they get into court and find out that been hired by some criminal element, but they'll push the envelope. I've heard that from numerous escrow and settlement people. I know you have too. It's like, you know, the closing already happened and here comes the wire fraudster again. It's like, where's my money? Well, we figured out that you're a wire fraudster. We're not sending you the money. Why don't you come in and pick it up? That's right. Stop in. We have some guys in $500 suits and sunglasses who want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and obviously with COVID, so many people have been working from home. So they're working on unprotected servers. They're working on systems that security was even a greater problem. I know our mutual friend, Tom Cronkright, at Certified, always discusses uh, the amount of fraud that's going on. You know, it went up tenfold as to the attempts. Everybody has to be on their guard. Cybersecurity and privacy, because privacy is going to be a huge thing as we're moving forward. We're already starting to see bills go through Congress. District of Columbia has just put together a privacy proposal. California obviously enacted law. And then there was a voter initiative that made the privacy standards even more restrictive. As California and probably New York develop very tight privacy requirements, yes, you may not work in New York or California, but if the lender you are working for and say you are in Illinois or Ohio or Alabama, if they work in New York and California, they're going to have one set of standards because they can't say, well, well it's Alabama, who cares? title industry, you know, underwriters, California privacy disclosure is provided to people who have perhaps never been to California. The cybersecurity is something that has to be in the DNA of every title and settlement agent because you can run a great company and you can have one issue in regard to a privacy issue or a cybersecurity issue and you're broke. You are bankrupt. It only takes one way in. Once they're in, they're in. So I think it's something that the title and settlement industry, and especially because so much of title and settlement around the United States is performed by attorneys and through law offices and quite often relatively small law offices, what I call county seat law offices, where the attorney does some general practice work and then they also close 10 or 12 real estate transactions a month. Just because you're an attorney, just because you're a smaller shop does not mean these guys aren't looking for you. They are looking for you. And they are also guessing that maybe you haven't stepped up the way somebody who handles 2,000 transactions a month has stepped up. Everybody has to be mindful of cybersecurity. It just has to be in the DNA of the agency. It has to be something that you drill down with your staff over and over again. As an old phrase goes, um, at no time have people more needed their sense of smell. <laughs> you have to look at something. It's like, this doesn't seem right. The language isn't right. A friend in Michigan used to say, yes, whenever we got an email and it came from a real estate agent and they used the word kindly, we knew it was probably cyber fraud because real estate agents are usually very polite, but kindly is not a word that comes up a lot. No, it's sure not. So you look at word usage, you retain companies and systems to assist you. Yeah, cybersecurity is just something that everybody has to be mindful of and do, and lenders are going to require it.
as we get into more and more required integration with lenders, especially larger lenders, in order to meet their requirements, not just as to third-party providers and what cybersecurity they're asking, but also when we're working in and out of our own respective systems and where lenders may be looking to do quality control and quality assurance in real time from loan estimate through funding and disbursement. Cybersecurity has got to be locked down. Otherwise, it may be that just the lender will say, sorry, we're not going to work with you. We don't care that the realtor wants to work with you. We don't care that the builder wants to work with you. It makes no difference. You do not meet our requirements. But privacy, this is also going to be a big issue. Where is your data? The data at rest, the data that's in transit. If you change software systems, which I know that you have had these conversations with people, it's like, okay, you're coming over to uh, RamQuest from XYZ system. All that data that's in there, we need to securely move that data into RamQuest. It can't be floating out there somewhere for days at a time. Well, let me devil's advocate something with you, if I may. I think that title companies have long understood the monetary value of their plant, which is just data. A lot of times it's physical books and paper data. It's data, and they've understood the inherent value of that. And we know that there are, let's say, retailers who watch the deed and mortgage filings, and two or three weeks after you move into your home, you're going to get the postcard from Bed Bath & Beyond. You're going to get the postcard from Lowe's or Home Depot and a myriad of others. And so there is value in the data of what has recently been transacted, or if you want to go upstream from that a little bit, what's about to be transacted. And boy, I'll bet Papa John's would love to know when you're getting ready to close so they could deliver your first pizza while you're unpacking your moving boxes. What should title and settlement agents think about the data that they have existing, but also that they're getting ready to transact and those that maybe looking to monetize that in some way. I agree. This is a quandary because title agents who are savvy understand that they do have a great deal of data. And we live in, as one Harvard professor called the age of surveillance capitalism. And as what you're discussing in a more fundamental way, I remember, again, going back to the 1980s, 1990s, they quite often would say, I just moved into a new home and the first piece of mail I got was to buy a cemetery plot. Yes. Because somehow those guys were on the top of it. They were actually in the real estate records and they would send something out about buying a cemetery plot. But we moved beyond cemetery plots. We've moved to all those types of things. And again, as you say, I bought a new house, Lowe's, Home Depot, companies like that, they're on top of that. That data that title agents and settlement agents have, they have to decide, first of all, what are we going to do? What can we legally do in regard to privacy? I think that where we are now is that if you have consumers and you provide a privacy disclosure and you want them to be able to easily tell you that they don't want their data sold to somebody else. That's where you need to be because if it's not easy, if it's cumbersome or it's someplace where they have to click on a third screen in order for this not to happen, again, you don't want to be in front of a regulator or worst case, in front of a trial judge with a class action attorney on the other side who then says, well, you know, the average person couldn't have figured this out and you've sold their data and you've breached their privacy. Many of these laws are laws that 
you don't necessarily have to show actual damages. You simply have to show that it happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that every title and settlement agent has to decide. And again, so many are attorneys. They may be used to that because it's like, well, we don't tell anybody about anything. And we're not going to tell anybody anything because they're clients. And we are bound by state law. We are bound by canons of ethics. We aren't going to do what we can't do. But where we've got lay title agencies and they have all this data, they have to be mindful about what they've got. Is it something where if they decide that they do want to sell this data, they need counsel. They need counsel about how to do it, again, what disclosures to provide, and be sure those disclosures are plain English, meet the requirements of any state law or federal law that we may end up with, and are easy to use so that people can opt out of letting their data be sold. It is a battle. When we've got, especially large national title agencies, they've got huge amounts of data, some of which they don't even want, but they got it anyway. And you obviously are very involved day to day in agency matters. So you can disavow me if this is incorrect, but I don't know of many agents today who do anything other than issue their privacy policy and don't offer the consumer an opt-in or opt-out form either one. And so I would think if that's the scenario people are operating under currently, I don't know that they have a right to engage in the sale of data or sharing of data, or maybe they do. And maybe they are getting these opt-in or opt-out forms completed at closing. I don't see that many unless they're working, again, with lenders or if their underwriter has provided some sort of disclosure because of the California requirement. Then I think those forms are out there. A lot of them just have the old privacy forms that were issued 20 years ago. Everybody who's entitled in settlement needs to look at what they've got and be sure it meets the requirements of their state law. It meets the requirements of their underwriter because I've been in those conversations and many underwriters is like, well, you know, the fact that it's not a California property, how do we know that somebody who's coming in as a buyer isn't actually a resident of California. And so we have no idea as to that. And also, what does the lender require? And what sort of privacy is the lender going to tell you that you can't sell information about our customer to anybody? And if the lender opts to, that's the lender's decision to do it. But by and large, I think that those master closing instructions, those uh, SLAs, those various agreements that people sign, and quite often read very little of them. You need to closely look at those types of things because that information may be something that you are contractually binding yourself to someone who is not the consumer to not provide to anybody else and to keep secure. Right. Okay. Well, you've touched on a couple of lender compliance requirements for title and settlement agents. What else are you seeing currently or do you anticipate to be on the rise? I think that going back a couple of years ago, lenders were spending about $9,000 to originate a loan. And out of that $9,000, they were clearing three or $400. With COVID and partly because of the strong refinance market as versus a buy-sell market, which sort of takes away a lot of the commissions that are paid to loan officers because the refinance market is so heavily online origination. That number dropped a couple thousand dollars in terms of cost and lenders were now clearing a couple thousand dollars or more on that origination. Lenders don't want to go back to that old number where they're spending $9,000 and clearing 300 bucks. And the only way for them to do that is to increase their technological capabilities and utilization of AI, greater utilization of BI, business intelligence, just simply looking at the stuff you already have and having people look at it. We've seen lenders recently, banks, discussing that, well, we're going to have 200,000 fewer employees in the next five years than we do now. 
Well, they're going to offer the same services, but it's going to be technologically driven and more and more automated. Quality assurance and quality control, lenders still somewhere between 20 and 30 days, a loan sits on a warehouse line waiting to be sold. Lenders want to cut that to 24 to 48 hours because that saves them a tremendous amount of money. And if they can do the QA and quality control in real time, through the transaction. Then again, once you get through funding and disbursement, 24 hours after that, you can sell the loan and that loan could be put into, and here's the word of the day, blockchain. Remember blockchain? Oh, yeah. Blockchain was going to do everything. Blockchain was going to brush our teeth. Again, for those who still worry about blockchain replacing title insurance, call me and we'll talk about the Torrance system and how that didn't replace title insurance. That being said, you know, to be able to sell a loan in such a way that QA has been done and it's now immutable. There's no way to adulterate that loan. Subsequent servicers are going to be wanting to pay higher premiums for those types of loans because it's like, okay, the loan's clean. And gee whiz, if the loan isn't clean, well, it has to be the originating lender's fault. It's not our fault because we couldn't louse it up. And so I think there's going to be more and more drive towards that. For the title and settlement industry, what that means for us and every title agent I've ever talked to or settlement agent I've ever talked to, and I'm sure you have too, you know, you get that dreaded letter six weeks after the closing from the lender and it says, oh, we forgot about this form or somebody didn't put their middle initial down or whatever it is. Well, if you do that QA and QC in real time, that goes away. You don't get that letter. You don't have to open that file again and suddenly spend your profits chasing someone around to get a signature on one document that is probably a disclosure and not a legal document anyway. I think that is something that as title and settlement agents need to be in dialogue with their lender customers. What is it they're looking to do? Exactly. And to be familiar with some of these programs that are out there and some of these vendors that are out there who can do it because... Again, if you're talking about one of the big five lenders, they're already aware. They already have their own processes, may have their own internal uh, systems put into place. If you're talking about the third national bank of Xenia, Ohio, the compliance person also handles auto loans. So it's like they haven't had a chance because they don't have the resources. And if you as a title and settlement agent can bring up this subject and tell them how you can integrate and work within their systems so that when this comes, as it comes, they'll be able to do it, that makes you a big winner. And not just in refinances, it's going to make it in purchases as it moves forward. So I think that the lender relationships, again, realty is is such a changed model. It's a different type of marketing as we discussed earlier. But the lender relationships, the lenders are going to want to be sure they can maintain their profit margins as they're entitled to. And the way to do that is through technology. And that means integration with the title and settlement uh, companies. You're not double keying things. You don't have to have three people do something that one person can do. That is where it's going to go as we move more and more in most jurisdictions to at least, I think, an electronic closing. The term digital closing means different things to different people, as you and I have talked about. But to be able to do something where the documentation is done electronically, and yeah, the note might not be done electronically, or there may be one or two things that are out there, but that's where we're going. Whatever town you're in, it makes no difference. And sometimes the more remote you are, the faster that may come to do the electronic documentation because it's 50 miles to the county seat. So we need to be able to record electronically. And of course, everybody's really busy and they're still really busy from uh, refinance boom. And we see now, you know, more listings. It's easing up a little bit, according to the National Association of Realtors, as far as listings. 
We'll probably see, I think, we'll see listings pick up again, end of third quarter into fourth quarter. So they're going to be busy. But in the meantime, you have to look beyond the end of the month. Agreed. Kind of staying in that lane of what do lenders want and when do they want it? What do lenders need and when do they need it? What's going on with respect to the fourth party compliance issues and what lenders are looking for in that arena from us? Well, I think that is continuing on pretty much the way it has been for some time. And that is that if you're using an outside mobile notary as versus, or if it's a remote online notary system, though quite often the lenders are dictating what systems are going to be used for their transactions. So it's like, well, I don't have to do any sort of compliance work in regard to that RON provider because you told me who to use. But if they're using remote notaries, searchers and abstractors, anybody that comes into contact with NPI that that they need to have those fourth parties. And that includes things like if they have an IT maintenance company, if they have a cleaning service, all these things they have to know as to what sort of compliance standards are required. And many lenders uh, have very stringent compliance standards. I know in the past of lenders who have come into title and settlement offices and looked at the expiration tags on the fire extinguishers. And it's like this fire extinguisher is one year past its prime. You have to buy a new fire extinguisher. Or from that standpoint, too, that your office is on the first floor. You have to have shade so people can't look in the windows and see what's on people's desks. But that fourth party compliance is still just as important and it just has to be built into your DNA. And whoever you retain to provide those services to you, they have to understand that. They have to do it and you have to monitor them and you have to audit them because you may be asked by your lender customer and some lender customers, you will be asked every quarter if you're doing this, perhaps monthly. And in advance of the question being asked, I think agencies might not have had time to do this during the COVID crush. And they might have put some guidelines of expectations for their employees together when the employees are working remotely. But a good, I think, first step would be to just have a work from home policy as it relates to data privacy, both physical data and digital data, so that you can at least tick the box that says, yes, we do have a work from home policy with regard to this. Fair? Oh, I absolutely agree. And I know some larger title agencies have moved into electronic closings in a big way before for COVID already had those types of policies and procedures. You have to have, and you have to audit them. And you have to be sure people are doing this. Data privacy is like, well, okay, are they using a company laptop or are they using their personal laptop when they're at home? Or do they have two different laptops? And perhaps two different phones just completely break everything apart so the two systems don't meet or can't meet. If you've got people working from home, you should already have a work from home policy and procedure. If they don't, as we've mentioned, you work in the agency side of a large national underwriter. Is that something that an underwriter can help advise with? Yes, absolutely. Because I can tell you that every underwriter that has any sort of director retail operations has one internally. We are happy to share what we have. So folks don't have to go invent the wheel. Exactly. It's available out there. And I think most major underwriters, to my knowledge, would be happy to share that kind of information because it's in everybody's interest. If there is a problem and someone has been working at home and there was no policy, there was no procedure, it's not just a matter of, well, they've all been cut off by a lender. But if it's a circumstance where now there is a wire fraud issue, suddenly everybody's in the jackpot. Exactly. Well, no conversation of ours is complete without at least touching on or spending a good amount of time on RESPA and what else we expect out of the CFPB as well. So 
I'm just going to put those two softballs up there for you and kick back and see what's on your mind. The Biden administration bureau, you know, since we had this heel of law case, which to my mind comes under the heading of careful what you ask for, because the desire was to try to find that the bureau was unconstitutionally provided for completely. And what the Supreme Court said was, well, no, we don't think that. But as far as the director, yes, the president can remove the director. Essentially, it will. And we've got litigation uh, churning through the courts now about the FHFA director as well. So what that did, of course, is now every four or eight or 12 or 16 or how many years a given party or platform is in charge in Washington, the bureau will probably reflect the policies of that government. When that administration leaves, we may see the pendulum swing all the way back the other way. Not good for business. Now it's just the way life is. I think that, again, I use the term muscular in regard to the bureau. I think that acting director, and I've heard his name pronounced Wagio and Wagio, I don't know which it is. And if he's listening, I apologize in advance. It may be a third way that I just don't know. But he's been pretty strong coming forward, the letter that he sent out to the mortgage servicers about if we come out of forbearance and when there's modifications, you better do them right. I mean, it was you could almost hear him wagging his finger because otherwise we will come and get you. And I think that when Director Chopra finally uh, takes the reins, as we heard him say about the FTC, from whence he is coming, is that, well, we did a lot of good work at the FTC. The major thing that we did not do is we didn't find people high enough dollar amounts for the stuff they did. Now, that's always great to hear because uh, we know that that million dollar a day ability to levy fines is out there if the Bureau should decide to do it. Well, and I think we all agree that penalties should be commensurate with the offenses with the caveat that if you've made it clear in advance what an offense looks like. And that's been a big problem, right? Uh, absolutely. Rulemaking through enforcement. That was one of the criticisms of the Cordray directorship was we don't know where the sidelines are. Exactly. And so while well, you're out of bounds, it's like, okay, where are the markers? And, and of course, the PHH case where PHH had a letter from HUD from the 1990s that essentially said, well, what you want to do is okay by us. And then Director Cordray said, well, it's not okay by us, by the Bureau. Not anymore. And like that was then, this is now. I think that at the Bureau and the people that I've spoken to who are at the Bureau, first of all, they they get that. They understand that if they're going to be taken seriously, and I say seriously from the standpoint that meaningfully, when they come down on somebody, they're going to have to have it laid out in advance. And Acting Director Mulvaney was all about that. It's like, let's tell people what the rules are before we start coming in to penalize them. I think we'll see a better job of that in this uh, new administration. I think that we will probably see more of that. Again, Director Chopra, he comes out of student lending and out of other areas. So we'll see if uh, our industry, particularly entitlement settlement and respite enforcement, is high on the list because there's a lot of other things that are high on the list over at the Bureau. But they're hiring, so they're adding more people. You know, I think that what we're going to see is a change from that standpoint that we will see probably more effective enforcement because that's the way to go. One question I have is in a lot of our businesses, when we're dealing with money, we employ positive pay, not only for the dollar amount, but also positive pay E. One of the things that we said would, boy, sure help curb this wire fraud problem is if the Fed wire transfer system would require a name match, an account holder name match. 
boy, that would really help seller proceeds not going into Chuck's Tahiti Vacation Fund account instead. Almost universally, the response from any either at the time current or prospective administration official has been, yeah, no, that's not viable. Why do you think that is? There's a lot of reasons. First of all, the Fedwire system is the Fedwire system. It doesn't work with names. It works with numbers. What I have heard for many years is that quite often community banks, community lenders, somebody there does actually look at the name where it's going. So yes, it's not going to go to the Uzbeki Freedom Fighters Foundation. And as you well know, quite often the first stop is not an offshore bank. The first stop for the wire fraudsters is usually some small bank here in the United States where the money is then broken up and then it's sent offshore or wherever it goes. And that process has changed. I have heard, and I've been hearing this for years, that when something gets caught at the lending side, it tends to be community lenders because somebody in that wiring department, they are not handling so many thousand wires a day that it's not practical. If you're a large clearinghouse bank and you're running thousands of wires a day, perhaps, well, thousands of wires an hour, I mean, you don't have that enough people to read all that. That's unfortunately where that business line has gone. I think there's just a practical problem there. And I don't know until there is that type of system, it's going to be a problem. There's a practical problem by the sheer weight of the wires and the ability to have a person or an AI system take a look at that and kick them out. And then discussing the wire fraudsters, the unfortunate thing is probably if an AI system is built, the wire fraudsters will find some way around it. Oh yeah, it's always a game of cat and mouse, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're going to see more and more of this. Going back 25 years ago, everybody brought in a cashier's a certified check. I know a lot of title agents now who are like, you know, I'm not sending money. I'm not accepting money. You got to bring me something that I can run through the bank and let it sit. Nobody wants to see that because of the practicality and because of the desired speed that consumers want, that everyone wants to be able to get transactions done cleanly and securely. I think it's a great idea. There's probably someone working on an AI system to do that, but that's what it's going to take. Until that day comes, we just have to be extra vigilant because also the hits are ours to take, not the banks. And so pure economics and self-interest has to be a key part in that, right? Absolutely. And we can't insure ourselves against our own actions. It is a difficult thing and you have to be on the ball. But one thing which is just as simply done, which a lot of settlement agents don't do, and I know that you have seen this occasionally or stand on the top of your desk to point this out, you need to reconcile your accounts at least daily. I've talked to title agents who are attorneys. It's like, well, you know, I reconcile once a month. Underwriters for years, the auditors come in and the title agent rolls their eyes and it's like, oh, here we go. You know, what am I doing wrong? But at no time, I think in this industry, are auditors more your friends. When auditors come in from the underwriter and they've got suggestions, do it. Do it. It's free, good advice. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and so many auditors now are fraud specialists. And again, software providers say, you're not using the system. You bought the system. You're not using it. There's a lot of folks that use it up to enough to get by. And they don't get the ROI and the advantages of a lot of the reason they purchased in the first place. 
Garth Graham from Stratmore at an MBA technology show, I guess two years ago, showed a polling that he had done of MBA members and something like 62% of all CEOs said the problem with technology was it was too expensive. And 66% of all chief technology officers said the problem with technology is people don't use it the right way. And it's like, that's the same problem. That's exactly right. (laughs) So courtesy advice, place a call into your agency rep and a call into your software provider and say, come take a look at what I'm doing and please tell me what I need to be doing differently and better. Absolutely. And I think if you're working with any larger lenders, especially multi-state or regional lenders, they may not require it yet, but to go in and get a SOC 2 type 2 to have the systems reviewed appropriately and to get the designation and to keep it up to date. But most people don't know is that you get a SOC 2 type 2. It's like, okay, we've got it. We put that sticker up on our website and never do anything again. It's like, no, 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 no. That type of system is something that everybody needs to implement and to, again, to pay attention to the free professional advice that's available and ask for it. I talked to one title agent. They're not an agent of my company. Title agent said, I haven't seen an auditor from my underwriter in four years. I said, call him. You better get somebody over here because you need to have someone explain to you where things are and how things work. If the auditors aren't coming on a regular basis, call your agency representative and ask why. First of all, you'll stun the agency rep that you're asking for an audit. But that being said, and I say it humorously, there's a lot of free advice out there and listen to the trained professionals because people such as yourself, you travel the United States, you've seen it all. And so you know what's going to work and what's not going to work. That's exactly right. Well said. And I want to make sure everyone knows that your company also has a podcast geared to the title and settlement real estate industry. We certainly want to keep the education channels as wide open as we can for everybody. Well, thank you. Yes, FNF Unplugged. We went on the air, so to speak, back in August. We have a variety of speakers. We have industry leaders. We have some of our FNF personnel who are very adept. We have a lot of our title agents talk about what they're doing and what problems they're seeing. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today. I always enjoy speaking with you, and I can't wait to see you out there on the road. Absolutely. Same here. Thanks, Chuck, for bringing such great material to our listeners. As always, links to Chuck are included in the show notes, and producer Amy always puts a few extra goodies in those notes for you, too, so you can take away even more materials and benefit from them. This might be your last reminder to let us know what you like, what you could live without, and what you'd like more of by doing a short survey. We really do want to hear from all of you so we can deliver the conversations you most want to hear. And remember, you have an opportunity to win a pair of AirPod Pros. That's it for today. I'm looking forward to next time. And until then, remember, people look to you for wisdom and guidance through an anxious time. The services you provide are more important than they know. And that's all okay, because together we understand that what you do really, truly matters.